Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. New year, new you, same old COVID problems. The lead starts right now. As kids return to class, mass confusion and anxiety coast to coast about whether schools are going to open. But at least there is some good news for kids today when it comes to COVID. So what was Donald Trump doing or more likely not doing as his supporters rampaged the Capitol a year ago this week? New insight this hour into what the January 6th committee is learning and looks and sounds like a page from the Old Testament. We're going to find out why fish were literally falling from the sky. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in the health lead. Major new announcements from the Food and Drug Administration today about Pfizer's COVID vaccine. The FDA today recommending the Pfizer booster for teens ages 12 to 15, shortening for everyone the recommended time between your second Pfizer shot and the booster, and okaying a third dose for some immunocompromised children between 5 and 11. More than 115 million Americans have been fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. And now the CDC is going to meet this week to decide whether to sign off on the FDA recommendations as parents are stressing about sending their kids back to school, given the recent spike in pediatric hospitalizations due to COVID. Though we should note, almost all of the serious COVID cases among children right now are among the unvaccinated. CNN's Alexandra Field starts us off this hour. If you look at the upstrick, it is actually almost a vertical increase. Amid a tsunami of new COVID cases, the daily average topping 400,000 for the first time. The FDA making major moves to add layers of protection, authorizing booster shots for kids ages 12 to 15, shortening the window between the initial doses of a vaccine and the booster shot for everyone from six months to five, and authorizing a third dose of vaccine for some immunocompromised children between the ages of five and 11. All that as the Omicron surge brings with it a growing number of hospitalizations, but at a lower rate than we've seen during other surges. The one group that that may be a problem for is very young kids, very young children, toddlers, who have trouble with upper airway infections. And we are seeing rising hospitalizations among that pediatric segment. School districts across the country now struggling with how to bring students safely back to school. Five metro Atlanta schools going remote for the first week of the new year, while Seattle, Chicago and D.C. schools delay their start dates to allow time for more testing. But the largest district in the nation, New York City schools, is bringing students back to class with a new mayor committing to in-person learning. We're not sending an unclear message of what is going to happen day to day. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen day to day. We are staying open. It's part of a shift being seen in more of the country toward finding ways to coexist with COVID. Crowds filling stadiums for holiday bowl games. The NFL and NBA easing restrictions on players last week after so many cancellations and delays. But there are still consequences of the crushingly high case count, and it isn't business as usual. 
New York City coping with a staffing shortage among first responders by instructing emergency medical services not to transport most stable patients with flu-like symptoms. The headaches for air travelers intensifying a mix of staffing shortages and winter weather now causing another 2,100 cancellations today. All those delays, cancellations, shortages and climbing cases, we're going to be living with all of it for a while. The governor of New York cutting to the chase today saying we are not in a good place. This is the surge we expected, she says. But on top of it, she says we will soon be seeing another wave of cases coming from all those holiday celebrations. Jake. All right, Alexandra Field, thank you so much. You just saw all the school districts imposing delays and reopening or changes to COVID protocols, but not in the Big Apple, where the new mayor announced today, quote, we want to be extremely clear The safest place for our children is in a school building, and we are going to keep our schools open, unquote. CNN's Athena Jones is in New York. And Athena, this is day three for the New York, uh, new New York City Mayor Eric Adams. And his, his message to parents seems to be pretty clear. Hi, Jake. It is clear, and it's exactly what you just said, that school is the safest place for children. He has been pointing out, pointing out the many drawbacks of not having schools open. For instance, children being exposed to a criminal environment, uh, children who have trouble with remote learning, which leaves behind a lot of kids, uh, especially those in poorer communities, those who are housing insecure. Also, the challenges parents face when they don't have childcare, and of course, missed meals. A lot of students in the New York City public school system relying on schools for meals. But this is also part of a larger uh, idea we're hearing from him, which is learning to live with COVID while we modify our behavior. Listen to some of what he had to say about this during a visit to an elementary school in the Bronx this morning. When a mayor has swagger, the city has swagger. We've allowed people to beat us down so much that all we did was wallow in COVID. That's all we did. And we no longer believed. This is a city of swagger. This is a city of resiliency. And all of these messages out there of what is going to happen, what is going to happen, we're going to survive. So the message there, no more wallowing in COVID. So the commitment to keeping schools open is certainly there, but there is no doubt this is going to be a big challenge, perhaps his biggest challenge as he begins his administration. Adams believes this can be done safely. He notes that the transmission rate in schools last year was less than 1%. And there is a plan in place involving testing and staffing issues. When it comes to testing, about 1.5 million tests were delivered to schools across the city, all across the city, over the weekend. And they're going to be testing students and the ones with close contact contacts to allow those uh, who aren't testing positive to stay. And also there is a pool of substitute teachers and also paraprofessionals, people who may have a teaching license, but they're not working in the classroom. Those are folks that they're going to bring in if they need to, uh, should staffing become a problem. Right. And of course, New York City has those vaccine mandates as well. Athena Jones, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, you just heard uh, the New York City mayor tell parents that kids need to be in school Uh, You see the NFL changing its policies so that asymptomatic players can return to the field sooner after testing positive for COVID. There does seem to be a paradigm shift on how society is handling uh, the pandemic, along with acknowledging that masking and vaccines uh, and, and those measures are important as well. What do you make of this change in thinking? I think there's two things that are happening. One is that we are dealing, obviously, with a much more contagious virus. But at the same time, Jake, as you and I have reported, even done a town hall on this last year, schools can be one of the safest places in terms of overall viral transmission. All the things that we talk about uh, in terms of uh, ventilation and testing and masking and all those things do make a difference. I think what is interesting, if you look specifically at what the recommendations are now, 
uh, and say, well, who needs to be isolated, for example, if they have actually tested positive? What if you've come in contact with someone who's tested positive? Uh, vaccinated or unvaccinated, you isolate for five days. I think what that reflects, Jake, is that people can be, they can be spreading this pre-symptomatic, even before they develop symptoms, but then it's usually a couple, three days after they've uh, had symptoms where they continue to spread. And I think that's where that five days is sort of coming from. And again, obviously then recommending people continue to wear a mask. So it is a shift, I think, in thinking, but it reflects, I think, some of the knowledge that we have about this virus specifically and how long it's actually contagious. And some schools uh, have opted for a test to stay policy, meaning instead of mandatory vaccines or quarantines, rather, for unvaccinated students who've been exposed to COVID, students can remain in school if they test negative at least twice. Does that policy work? I mean, we know that people can continue to test positive even after they're, they're no longer contagious. Yeah, right. So I think th- there's, there's two different types of tests that we're talking about here. There's the PCR test, which is the one that you're alluding to, which basically is going to find even small presence of genetic material of the virus that may continue to test positive even after someone has, you know, they're, they're no longer symptomatic or contagious. It's that rapid antigen test, the second one, Jake, that I think is really important here. It's a fundamental point. This test oftentimes doesn't get as much attention. People are buying them in stores, obviously. But what we talk about with this test is its ability to determine if someone is contagious, not just if they have the virus in their body. And that sort of test to state policy, you know, they've First of all, they've modeled it and, and done some studies and found that it can be quite effective. But if the real question you're trying to answer when you do one of these tests is not do I have presence of virus, but am I contagious, then those rapid antigen tests can be very effective for that. I want to go through uh, those changes from the FDA. First, kids aged 12 to 15 are authorized to get the Pfizer booster if it has been five months since their second dose. About five million teens fall into that category right now. How long will it it be? Uh, My kids are in this group. They're 12 and 14. How long will it be before they can get shots in their arms? Well, I think, you know, we're going to see what the the final uh, sort of uh, consensus is from the FDA and the CDC. But as you know, we've we've been through this process so many times now, Jake. I think it happens quickly. Um, You know, they they have these uh, committee meetings They look at the data, they look at what's happening in the United States, but also around the world in terms of safety data, for example, from Israel. And after that, the process happens fast, you know, within the next few days, I would say, Jake, maybe even sooner. So the FDA is also short uh, recommending that uh, we all shorten the time between the second dose and the booster, uh, not just for 12 to 15 year olds, but for adults as well, uh, reducing it from six months to five months. Why? Well, this is sort of an interesting point. And, and, and to just back up for a second, there is a logic to waiting to boost somebody. You want to make sure the immune system is fully primed before you boost. So some people say, well, just make it do it as quickly as possible. Well, that, that may not give you as much of an impact as waiting for the immune system to be fully primed. I think what they're seeing now is they, they recommended six months based on that. And they're seeing now that even with a month shorter duration interval between the second and third shots, they can still get that impact of the boost. So they obviously want to do this sooner, you know, get people boosted more quickly, but they want to make sure you're you're not losing the punch of that boost by by doing it too quickly. And finally, Sanjay, tell us about the FDA recommending this third dose for kids 5 to 11 who are immunocompromised. Who exactly falls under that category? 
Well, this has always been an interesting situation. If you go to the CDC's website and look at what qualifies as some of these uh, underlying conditions or immune compromised conditions, it can be a pretty, pretty big list. Um, you know, uh, people who clearly have weakened immune systems because of some underlying disease or because they're being treated with a medication that weakens their immune system, that's going to be the clearest. But people who are also at risk for various things, including obesity, uh, moderate to severe asthma, I'm going to be looking to see specifically how they define that, um, you know, in terms of this 5 to 11-year-old group of uh, children. That's going to be really important. I think there's clear examples, kids whose immune systems just don't work as well, therefore they didn't generate as much antibodies uh, previously. But I think also, are there going to be other people because of these underlying conditions that also qualify. Sanjay, do you suspect that inevitably all kids five and older will be eventually eligible for a booster shot? I, I think so, uh, Jake. I mean, I think that's where we're, we're headed. And if you look at other vaccination schedules that your kids and my kids have received over the years, oftentimes it is this model of the prime and then the boost. Even for adults, uh, you know, for hepatitis, for example, uh, a prime and a boost if you've gotten that shot as an adult. So I, I think that that's where we're headed. It, it sort of probably makes the most sense in terms of how these vaccines work. But we also have to see at the time that this may be available, what is happening with COVID in the country and, and in the world at that point. If the numbers are really low, that may dictate the thinking on whether those boosters will be recommended or not as well. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, good to see you. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining us today. The sky is anything but friendly as Mother Nature and COVID collide, creating the perfect storm. How long will this last? Plus, paging the Trump siblings, why the New York Attorney General wants Ivanka and Don Jr. to testify. That's ahead. And we're back with our national lead in an avalanche of flight cancellations across the country. More than 18,000 flights canceled since Christmas Eve. Today alone, airlines have grounded almost 3,000 flights. First, of course, because of COVID causing staff shortages and now pile on a big winter storm. CNN's Pete Montine is live for us at Reagan National Airport just outside D.C. And Pete, how long do airlines think these cancellations are going to continue? Well, Jake, it seems these storm-related cancellations are about to subside, although these COVID cancellations because of crew staffing shortages are not over yet. Just look at the numbers of today. 2,900 flight cancellations nationwide. About 16% of Southwest Airlines' schedule canceled. 23% of its flights delayed. 14% of flights at SkyWest. It's a regional carrier that operates flights for Delta, American, and United. 14% of JetBlue's flights. You know, airports have been frantically trying to clear ramps and taxiways and runways to try and get things back open and operating across the Mid-Atlantic. In fact, there was a ground stop here at Reagan National Airport earlier today. It has just ended. Also a ground stop at nearby BWI. 50% of all flights there were canceled. About 80% of flights here were canceled. The most of any airport across the country. You know, January 3rd was expected to be one of the biggest days for holiday air travel, everybody coming back home all at once. And look behind me, Jake, pretty much a ghost town here right now. What about passengers? Are they getting any offers from the airlines when their flights get canceled for weather or COVID reasons? Well, remember, a lot of airlines will default if your flight is canceled to giving you a credit. Although the DOT regulations state that if your flight is canceled by an airline for pretty much any reason, you're entitled to a cash refund, not a credit like airlines would like to give you. So make sure you stick up for yourself and ask for a cash refund if they're trying to give you a credit. All right, Pete Montine at Reagan National, thanks so much. While his supporters stormed the Capitol, Donald Trump was doing, well, 
apparently a whole lot of nothing. New insight into what the January 6th Special Select Committee now knows. Stay with us. In our politics lead, members of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection now believe they have firsthand knowledge of what then-President Trump was doing during the deadly riot. A source tells CNN that the information comes not only from texts and other documents, but from at least one witness who was with Trump in the White House while the attack was going on. CNN's Jamie Gangel joins us now with her brand new reporting. Jamie, tell us what you're learning. So the emphasis here, Jake, is on firsthand. First of all, Congresswoman Liz Cheney has revealed the committee has firsthand testimony that Trump was sitting in the dining room next to the Oval Office watching the attack unfold on television. We've heard this before, but now the committee knows it from a witness who was there. Cheney also says, again, they have firsthand testimony that Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, went in at least twice to ask uh, Trump to, quote, please stop this violence. In addition, a person with knowledge of the investigation has told me that the committee has information from, quote, multiple sources with firsthand knowledge that describe what then-President Trump was saying, doing, and not doing during the riot. That could be very important that he's not uh, acting. The source said, quote, there's a collection of people with relevant information. Translation, Jake, firsthand indicates the committee is now hearing from people with direct knowledge. It could be someone who is in the room, someone on the phone, but these are people with firsthand information. Um, I would say bottom line, Jake, this means the committee has broken through Trump's wall. And Jamie, uh, Congresswoman Cheney, uh, she was also asked about the possibility of criminal charges against Donald Trump. I want to play part of her answer. The committee has firsthand testimony that uh, President Trump was sitting in the dining room next to the Oval Office watching on television as the Capitol was assaulted, Mm -hmm. as the violence uh, occurred. Um, We know that that is clearly a supreme dereliction of duty. Uh, One of the things that the committee is looking at uh, from the perspective of our legislative purpose is whether we need enhanced penalties for that kind of dereliction of duty. Walk us through uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney's thinking here, because she still seems to think the committee can produce enough evidence to change the minds of some Republicans on this. Well, she certainly hopes so, because after all, she has given up politics, as she says, for democracy. I think it's going to come down to what they're going to be able to learn, obviously, from witnesses, documents they collect. We will know much more when the hearings happen. But just as an example, one witness that we know of who's given a deposition to the committee is Keith Kellogg. He was former Vice President Mike Pence's national security advisor, who happened to be with Trump in the White House on January 6th when the riot was going on. Uh, Our colleague Alex Marquardt reached out to Kellogg, who told us that he testified under oath to the January 6th committee. He declined to comment about the substance of his deposition, but he is a perfect example of first-hand testimony. He's also an interesting witness, Jake, because, as you know, he's considered a Trump loyalist. But he's also a retired general who, I'm told, takes his testimony seriously. Again, he was in the room with Trump. 
Jamie, when Speaker Pelosi rejected mm. two of Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader's original picks for the committee, of one of whom Jim Jordan might be a witness for the committee, right. McCarthy pulled all of his picks. He refused to have Republicans officially cooperate. I can't imagine that Republicans today see that as a smart idea. It's much, much wiser to have allies in the room. Do you think the fact that they don't have anybody gumming up the works, any Jim Jordans or even, you know, uh, some other uh, nondescript uh, Republican there, do you think that's having an impact on the committee's work? Absolutely. I think it's having a huge impact. First of all, um, Liz Cheney's a Republican. Adam Kinzinger is a Republican. There are Republican staff members on the committee. So there's bipartisan input. But whether you're a Democrat or a Republican on that committee right now, there's really no disagreement. No one is objecting. There's no turbulence. They don't have to watch out for uh, any Kevin McCarthy Republicans. Things are working very smoothly. If Kevin McCarthy had had Republican members he appointed on the committee who were objecting to the committee's work, he could have slowed the committee's work down. Also, and maybe most important, he would know what was going on. Right now, he has no idea what's going on behind the scenes, Jake. Yeah, governance by tantrum seldom works out. Jamie Gangel, thank you so much. Sure. Here to discuss CNN legal analyst Kerry Cordero, a national security lawyer, who previously worked at the U.S. Justice Department. Kerry, what's your reaction when you hear about all this evidence the committee has gathered about what Trump was doing while his supporters attacked the Capitol? Well, one thing I think that's important, Jake, is that it sounds that people are actually cooperating. So up until now, we've heard a lot about those who are not cooperating with the committee. But the example that Jamie gave of uh, Keith Kellogg shows that there are individuals who are close to the former president who are voluntarily cooperating and providing the committee with information. So that's a really important development. I think the question that the committee has to look at if they're exploring potential criminal referral or criminal charges is the actual conduct. So I think it will be a harder case for the committee to look at the absence of activity on behalf of the former president versus what did he affirmatively do instead of what he didn't do? Because then you're looking at the actions of a president in his presidential capacity, um, which raises a whole set of other issues regarding a president who just simply isn't doing a good job. And that could be potentially applicable in a whole other range of activities. Right. I mean, we have Ivanka Trump. We we, we just heard uh, Jamie talk about Ivanka Trump, uh, according to uh, sources, uh, telling the, her dad, asking her dad twice, supposedly on that day, to call off the mob. She obviously thought he could have done something if that reporting uh, and account is correct. But from a legal perspective, if Trump really did just sit there and do nothing, is that a crime? Could he be criminal, criminally liable? Because Liz, Liz Cheney's talking about supreme dereliction of duty. But I guess my question is, is that a crime or is that just a term of art? I think that would be a hard case to make under the under the actual law. So the statute that the committee may be looking at which has been used to prosecute other insurrectionists who participated in the assault on the Capitol that day, is 18 U.S.C. 1512, which is an obstruction charge. Charges for somebody who is uh, obstructing the activity of what Congress was trying to do that day. I think that is a really difficult fact pattern to 
analyze with respect to the former president if the alleged conduct is simply that he didn't do anything. The way that I would suggest the committee hopefully is conducting its analysis looks at it in two ways. Number one, what are the actual activities he was engaged in and those close to him were engaged in leading up to January 6th and on January 6th that were affirmative actions that may have incited or caused the assault on the Capitol. And then the second area I think of potential criminal investigation uh, an investigation by Congress, Jake, would be actions that the former president may have taken after January 6th in terms of obstructing the actual committee's investigation. I do wonder whether they are on the committee looking into or whether the Justice Department is looking into obstruction, witness tampering, his efforts to keep people from cooperating with the committee itself, which would be obstruction as well. So let's assume that they, the Justice Department finds evidence of obstruction or, or witness tampering, as you say, and, and not dereliction of, of duty. Do you think the Ju- Justice Department would actually act on that? Charging a former president, uh, I don't even think John Tyler, uh, who after his presidency joined the Confederacy, uh, I don't think he was, w- was charged with a crime. Would the Justice Department charge Trump with a crime, you think? I don't think that this is a place that the current Justice Department would want to go. So it would have to be a very strong case. And so from that perspective, it if the committee is looking into this, then they would really need to establish compelling facts to make a referral that the former president was obstructing their committee investigation or, again, in the pre-January 6, 2021 activities, affirmative actions by the former president. I don't think absence of action, him simply sitting there and doing nothing would be enough for this Justice Department to go forward because if they were to pursue charges against the former president, obviously they would then open themselves up to accusations of acting politically, which is the exact opposite that this current Justice Department wants to be perceived as doing. All right, Carrie Cordero, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. Happy New Year. This Thursday, join Anderson Cooper and me. We have an unprecedented conversation live at the Capitol with Capitol Police, with lawmakers. January 6th, one year later, starts at 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, only, only on CNN. Keeping it all in the family, Donald Trump's adult children, Ivanka and Don Jr., just got served. Find out why. In our National League, jurors in the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of a failed blood testing company, Theranos, while the jurors are deadlocked in a few of the counts against her after about a week of deliberations, Holmes, who was once one of the youngest billionaires in the country, at least on paper, is on trial for wire fraud and lying to her investors, doctors, and patients about the effectiveness of her startup's blood test. Let's get straight to CNN's Camilla Bernal. And Camilla, they're deadlocked on three of 11 counts. Now, usually that could mean a mistrial. What does the judge have to say? Well, it likely will not be a mistrial in this case. Instead, what we would see is a partial verdict. And so what would happen here is that the jury would deliver the verdict on those eight counts that they agree on, and then the government would have the option to retry the case on those three counts that could be a deadlock here. Now, it is important to point out that this is not the case at the moment because what the judge said was go back and try to figure it out, try to come to an agreement. 
agreement. We do not know exactly which of the 11 counts the jury is having trouble with, but we do know that these charges are divided between investors and then doctors and patients. I want to go back sort of to the beginning of all of this. Elizabeth Holmes founded Theranos. This was a blood testing company that promised a wide range of blood tests with just a few drops of blood, just a prick of a finger. And prosecutors say that a lot of these tests were inaccurate. So a lot of patients believing that they were sick when in fact they were not. The federal government also says that she lied to investors about the accuracy of her technology, about her relationship with the military, about uh, pharmaceutical companies validating her technology. But the defense team, they say that Elizabeth Holmes always acted in good faith, that she believed her scientists when they told her that things were going according to plan. They say that in terms of the relationship with the military, that it was more of a goal, something they were working towards and not necessarily a fantasy. And they say the investors, well, some of them did their due diligence, others did not, and yet they decided to invest anyway. So the jury here, Jake, will have to figure out whether this vision of the future that Elizabeth Holmes was selling was okay or it was fraud. So they're deadlocked on three of the 11 counts. What about the other eight? How close are the jurors to coming up with a decision for them? Well, it appears that they have agreed on these eight other counts. We know it took him about 45 hours, seven days. And ironically, uh, it also took Elizabeth Holmes seven days on the stand as she was defending herself. So we're unclear of why this jury is deadlocked. Um, and we're still wondering whether or not this jury believed her. This was sort of her expertise, her charm. She was able to convince people and sell her company. And so the question remains, was she able to do this with the jury? as well. Jake. All right. CNN's Camilla Bernal. Thank you so much. Turning to our money lead in a different court case, the New York Attorney General's office subpoenaed both Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. today as part of its investigation into the Trump organization. The siblings are being asked to testify and hand over documents related to the investigation into whether the Trump family business manipulated the value of its properties. The Attorney General's office previously issued a subpoena for former President Trump. CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now live. And Kara, what information are invest- <coughs> me, investigators trying to obtain from Don Jr. and Ivanka? Well, Jake, we learned today in a court filing that the New York Attorney General's office have issued subpoenas to Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump for documents and testimony as they're looking into whether the Trump Organization and its executives messed with the valuations for a number of properties that Trump and his business owns. Those properties include golf courses and office buildings. And what we know is that Donald Trump you know, had been a longtime employee of the company. When his father became president, he became one of the top officers of the company. He also had a history of involvement with a number of their office towers that they own. Now, Ivanka Trump, she, of course, was also very involved with the business, particularly with a number of of specific hotel properties. Uh, Now, she left the company and joined her father's administration. But these subpoenas come, as as you mentioned, the former president himself had been subpoenaed for a deposition. Uh, Letitia James's office had set a deadline for this Friday. This all came out in court because they're fighting this. And uh, Trump's lawyers and lawyers for the children are expected to file motions, possibly as soon as today, to quash these subpoenas. So the judge laying out a timeline here for when they will need to respond to this. I mean, the timing here is very interesting because you may remember Eric Trump had sat for a deposition with James's office. He was subpoenaed. A judge ordered him to do this. That was in the fall of 2020. But times have changed because Letitia James has now joined the criminal investigation 
being run by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That obviously adds a layer of seriousness to this more than a civil investigation. And that's part of the issue that we expect lawyers to really focus on, how she is having her hands in both the civil case and the criminal case. But this will go to a judge and it may be uh, you know, at least a month or so before any decision is made on whether they will testify and when that might be Jake. Yeah, Kara, I mean, I wanted to ask you about the Manhattan District Attorney um, running a criminal probe into the Trump organization. What do we know about the, the progress of that investigation? Well, we do know that they have been talking to a number of witnesses. They brought a number of people before the grand jury in the last few weeks. And just on January 1st, the new Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, was sworn into office. Now, he's coming into this office. He's an experienced prosecutor. He's asked one of the top officials, lawyers working on the investigation to stay on the case. He's agreed to do so. So he will be getting briefed on the evidence that they have, on questions about statute of limitations that may exist. And then he will really burrow in and and you know, be the ultimate arbiter to decide whether there is enough evidence here of any additional charges against the Trump organization or any officials, including the former president, uh, once he evaluates that evidence, Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Coming up, cloudy with a chance of fish, the bizarre but surprisingly not completely uncommon phenomenon next. In our national lead, it's raining fish. Yes, fish in parts of East Texas. Late last week, people in Texarkana reported palm-sized fish falling from the sky. One resident telling a CNN affiliate he thought it was pretty cool when he started collecting the fish into a bucket to use as bait. Others shared photos of their own backyard fish finds on the city's Facebook page. Let's bring in CNN's Tom Sater. Tom, this looks crazy or maybe a scene from HBO's Watchmen, but it's actually not that out of the ordinary. Uh, You know, Jake, it does happen once in a while. I think the last report in the U.S. was back in 2017 in California. Uh, We have covered stories like this once in a while for CNN International, but this is extremely rare. And let me break it down for you why. Typically, it's because you need a water spout. And these are seaside communities that have that water spout pick up fish if they're in the right place. Texarkana radar from last Wednesday. It doesn't look very scary. A little line moves through. You get in closer and just to the southwest. This is Texarkana, by the way. There's not a seaside community. There's a large lake, the Wright-Patman Lake here. And that's a good 10 miles from Texarkana. The National Weather Service in Shreveport did not report a tornado. But here's the theory. It is believed that a water spout developed over the lake and lifted the fish that just happened to be in the right position at the surface and took it high into the cloud tops. The water spout then dissipates over land and that storm carried this fish, all of this fish, 10 miles and then deposited over, of course, Texarkana. I mean, the stories we're hearing of people at the car dealerships, workers hearing the thud on the roof running out and saying, it's raining fish. They don't believe them, obviously. And they don't know, really, it is. I mean, look, our crack staff at our weather department even put together that great, uh, you know, animation. So we've used this before, unfortunately. But another fish story, of course, someone saying the one that got away. <laughs> and over on the East Coast, it's, it's not fish, uh, but lots of parts of the East Coast were being hit with a lot of snow. Uh, tell us more about that and what, what it's looking like now. Uh, several elements of severe weather, uh, terrible flooding on the streets, 
uh, of around Sea Isle, New Jersey. We've got over 10 inches in Atlantic City, snow on the coastline and the beaches. Look at these totals here. I mean, you got a good eight and a half at Reagan National uh, and a good Gatlinburg. You know, I mean, you're up many locations in several states from North Carolina up to New Jersey getting a foot of snowfall. I mean, that cold air is just tremendous. And with that, a lot of wind damage, too. Now, the warnings are starting to get whittled away somewhat, which is good news. It's a fast-moving system, and now it's just the coastal areas. But with that heavy snowfall, we're seeing widespread power outages, a few tornadoes down in Georgia, Jake, earlier today with some downed trees. But with that heavy snow really impacting the area, especially around Alexandria, as you know there, uh, we're going to have power outages for a while. And that bitter cold's going to be with us, too. So it's the worst time to lose power. Up toward areas around Nantucket could see a little bit of snow. But this one's moving out. I mean, hard to imagine. The first snowfall of the year in many locations, and you had thunder snow from Boone, North Carolina, to even in Baltimore. That's when it's snowing like two, three uh, inches an hour. But really a heavy concentration in an areas of Virginia, uh, you know, areas of D.C. with the power outages. Now the cold sets in. This cold front sliding all the way down through Florida and Key West. The next batch is on the way from central Canada. And here it comes, a little clipper, but even more powerful system out into the west, uh, in case uh, another storm system moving in the Pacific Northwest, that'll move across the country as well. And in case you're wondering, Jake, uh, they were mainly white bass. So we'll be here. <laughs> Tom Sater, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, CNN goes inside the nation's largest pediatric hospital where the hospital staff are, are treating a record number of children with COVID. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, babies and young kids still too young to be vaccinated suffering with coronavirus. We're going to take you inside the nation's largest pediatric hospital, which is seeing a surge in young patients right now. Plus, President Biden makes a promise to Ukraine, vowing that the U.S. will respond decisively if Russia invades Ukraine again. Will that warning work, however, given that Biden has already taken unilateral action by U.S. troops off the table? We're live in Moscow. And leading this hour, the nation is nearing the one-year anniversary of the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and the January 6th committee appears to be making significant progress. CNN has learned that the panel believes it has information from multiple sources with firsthand knowledge describing what then-President Donald Trump was doing while that pro-Trump mob was storming the Capitol. And now, as CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, the select committee is in danger of running out of time to produce results. With the first anniversary of the January 6th riot at the Capitol just days away, the House Select Committee is zeroing in on what was, and perhaps more importantly, what was not happening in the White House. The committee has first-hand testimony now that he was sitting in the dining room next to the Oval Office watching the attack on television uh, as, as the assault on the Capitol occurred. A special focus now on former President Donald Trump's conduct in the White House on that day. In particular, how he resisted pleas to take action to get his supporters to leave the Capitol. We have first-hand testimony uh, that his daughter Ivanka uh, went in at least twice uh, to ask him to please stop this violence. Committee members say they also have texts and other documents that back up their witness testimony. They are seeking even more evidence in a tranche of documents held by the National Archives that Trump is suing to keep secret. The Supreme Court could decide soon if they will take up the case. The committee's work comes as the clock is ticking on their window to produce a product. They are hatching plans for big primetime hearings they hope will provide a definitive narrative of what led to the chaos on that day. What occurred on January 6th played out in full view of the American public and the world. 
and we want to make sure that that never, ever happens again. So we need to get it right. Meanwhile, Republicans continue to try and undermine their work. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who could still be called before the committee, penned a lengthy letter to his colleagues saying the focus should be on the security lapses that led to January 6th. Unfortunately, one year later, the majority party seems no closer to answering the central question of how the Capitol was left so unprepared and what must be done to ensure it never happens again. Instead, they are using it as a partisan political weapon to further divide our country, McCarthy wrote without making any mention of the mob of angry Trump supporters fueled by the big lie about the 2020 election being stolen. Meanwhile, plans are in place to remember what took place one year ago. President Biden plans to deliver remarks, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is hosting a series of events, including members of Congress sharing their experiences from that day and a candlelight vigil on the Capitol steps on the evening of January 6th. And the January 6th Select Committee is concerned about those security lapses and do plan to offer some recommendations, but it's the Capitol Police Force right now that is having a difficult time recovering from the January 6th riots. The uh, Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger saying that they have plugged a lot of the holes that they found from what happened on January 6th, but their biggest problem right now is finding physical officers to join the force. Jake, right now he says their force is down 400 p people that they need to be fully staffed in order to protect the Capitol. Jake. Brian Nobles, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. As he cup, let me start with you. It seems as though Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is inching closer and closer to accusing uh, former President Trump of a crime. She mentioned dereliction of duty on Sunday. Carrie Cordero told us in the last hour that's a hard legal case to make. It's more likely Trump might get something like an obstruction charge. What are the political ramifications for Republicans if Trump is ultimately charged with a crime related to January 6th? Oh, I think they're huge, but I think they're already huge. And I don't think you need a crime for there to be, um, you know, some, some, some real hard lessons down the line. I mean, whether, whether they come in time for 2022, uh, I don't know, but I think Republicans will be punished for this uh, in the long term for not only kind of allowing and encouraging what happened on January 6th, but also then lying about why and how it happened in the months, in fact, year after, um, and seemingly have having learned no lessons about it. In fact, many, many uh, talk about, you know, overturning elections again. And so I don't think you need criminal charges against Donald Trump for there to be some real serious consequences here. Bakari Sellers, let me ask you, um, if Republican congressmen uh, are part of this, are complicit in what happened on January 6th uh, in so many ways, and if Donald Trump, the leader of the party, was the one who, who led the charge, um, why are we not expecting there to be any, any voter recriminations this November? We are all pretty much expecting that Republicans are going to take the House back, maybe even the Senate back, and there really isn't going to be uh, any, at least, political blowback? I mean, that's a good question, and I think part of it has to be the fact that over the next weeks, um, it, it really can't be months because we're already in 2022, this committee outside of Liz Cheney really needs to get their messaging together about what exactly happened and about what that means and how you prevent it from happening again. That's the most important thing, because right now on the list of things that the American public are worried about, I mean, it's it's COVID, number one, I'm sure uh, there are concerns about inflation and the all the days that go by, this drops further and further down the radar. So I'm sure 
that many people want to remember this, remember the lives lost on the 6th. But the question, it begs itself, what happens on the 7th? What is the messaging going forward about how you're going to hold these individuals accountable um, and how you're going to prevent this from happening again? I see if 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 I came out right now and said Donald Trump bears responsibility for the attack on Congress by mob rioters, uh, I would be denounced, I think, by people at other networks and right wing media, et cetera. But you know who said that? House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy a year ago this week. Uh, take a listen. President bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. I mean, he directly blamed the mob rioters on Donald Trump a year ago. And and this week, he doesn't even mention Trump's name when talking about the January 6th attack. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, it shouldn't surprise anyone that in the moment, you know, it was very clear what had happened and how it happened. Um you know, the, the connecting the dots was, was very obvious. And then of course, in the following months and, and over the course of investigations, we have more details, but it wasn't unclear what happened that day. What changed is politics. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican party decided they could not hang this on Donald Trump and still keep his affection and his voters. And so they had to go along with his lies about what happened that day. And again, what happened on on election day, um, it's it's perverse and perverted. But uh, you know, we all we all know what happened that day, and I uh, uh, I don't expect anything that Donald Trump says this January sixth or going forward to change the facts of history. It was clear. And Bakari Sellers, um, we heard we had uh, reporting from Jamie Gangel uh, a few minutes ago saying that there are Republicans on Capitol Hill who think that Kevin McCarthy's decision to pull all of the Republicans that he, he wanted to put on the committee, to pull them off entirely, <coughs> that that was unwise. He did that because Nancy Pelosi didn't want to put two of them on the committee. One of them, Jim Jordan, is, is probably going to be a, a, a witness. Um, and, and anyway, there are a lot of Republicans who think that was really unwise because now McCarthy has no visibility into what's going on. He doesn't have any allies on the committee to push back or leak or and keep him informed even as to what's going on. Correct. As much as I talked about the messaging of the Democrats and, and Liz Cheney coming out uh, of this uh, committee, the fact is there's no messaging that will have any credibility pushing back against them. You know, and a lot of times, uh, you know this better than I, Jake, you have minority reports that are developed from these committees. In this instance, you're not going to have that. But I mean, again, it kind of goes to the fact that we know that Nancy Pelosi versus uh, Kevin McCarthy is not really a, a, a fair chess match in terms of their leadership tactics. And she's run circles around them even on this. But the fact remains, this committee has to come out with something strong, sound messaging and preventing this from happening again or else it's going to get drowned out by COVID. It's going to get drowned out by in, uh, inflation. It's going to get drowned out by the problems of today. And we should also note, uh, after all the lies, um, of course, a, b- a number of states had these bogus audits. Um, Arizona, Pennsylvania is talking about it. The Texas Secretary of State's office recently uh, released a progress report on its so-called full forensic audit of the 2020 election results in four uh, densely populated Texas counties. And the report 
found very few discrepancies between the electronic and manual hand counts of ballots, 17 in Collin County, 10 in Dallas County, 5 in Harris County, 0 in Tarrant County. The discrepancies found had reasonable explanations like data entry errors, curbside voters not having both electric uh, and paper copy of their vote. SC Cup, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, the Texas Attorney General's office released this report Friday night, New Year's Eve, talking about, <laughs> talking about burying a story in a Friday night do- news dump. Well, it's inconvenient for the conspiracy theorists in the Republican Party, but I think the untold story in all of this is the waste, the actual taxpayer waste that these phony audits and, you know, uh, election fraud non-stories are costing Americans. That that should be important to conservatives and Republicans. It should be important to everyone. But the waste of resources and money and time and people, not to mention the things we do talk about all the time, which is that this is turning people into conspiracy theorists um, who no longer trust that elections are real, but also just the waste. And every time one of these pops up and reveals there wasn't um, significant fraud um, or fraud at all, I just think, uh, how long are we going to keep wasting time and money on this? Thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Happy New Year to you both. Coming up, new today, the FDA says a new group of Americans can get Pfizer boosters and sooner than previously recommended what that could mean for the return to classrooms. That's next. Plus, with much of the Biden agenda on the line, top Democrats want to shift to another high priority promise. We'll explain ahead. In our health lead right now, a peak of 3,000 children are hospitalized with coronavirus. That is the largest number of the entire pandemic when it comes to children in the U.S. as the new year kicks off and schools reopen their doors today. CNN senior national correspondent Miguel Marquez went to the country's biggest children's hospital where they just surpassed the summer Delta surge of COVID hospitalizations. And doctors, they say, doctors there say most of the kids are unvaccinated. Four-month-old Grayson Perry, his tiny belly rapidly expanding and contracting. One of many children here with COVID-19 struggling to breathe. Are you afraid they're going to have to intubate him? Yeah, a little bit. It's just really scary. So I just hope that, you know, he's able to get better and go home. Gayville Goff, mom to three, thinks her youngest picked up the virus at a Christmas family gathering. Her only job now, keeping her son in good spirits. I do talk to him in like a little baby voice. I sing to him. I can't sing, but he likes it. (laughs) One of nearly 70 children now hospitalized at Texas Children's, a new record high for the nation's largest pediatric hospital. In just the last two weeks, hospitalizations here have increased more than fourfold. Most unvaccinated or not eligible for vaccines, from toddlers to teens. Our COVID journey began due, or see, don't even know my days. Brains are mashed potatoes. We began November 29th. Me and my daughter both tested uh, positive for COVID. Amy Woodruff's daughter, Haley, her 17th birthday, the day we visited, has been intubated in an induced coma for nearly a month. She also gave birth nearly three weeks ago. She knows none of it. She had a C-section in Amarillo on December 9th to a beautiful little baby girl, three pounds, six ounces. Which she has not seen yet. She has not seen. 
and she was COVID negative, praise Jesus. From Pampa, Texas, Hallie was moved to Amarillo, then Houston for advanced care. Still unaware, her three-week-old daughter, Zyla Faye, is 900 miles away in an Amarillo newborn intensive care unit. What will you tell her when you can speak to her? I don't even want to think about it. That's my, my little girl. Being away from her little girl, my heart bleeds for her. The Omicron variant now ripping through the Lone Star State. Texas children's preparing for even more sick kids as COVID-19 cases skyrocket. What is your sense for what the next few weeks are going to hold? You know, I think the, the bar for resilience just keeps moving. You think that I don't know how we could do this again, and then we keep doing it again. As Texas Children's readies for a fourth coronavirus wave, already its ER is seeing a spike in kids suffering mild symptoms, their parents seeking testing, bogging down triage for the seriously ill. We're seeing a lot of patients present with mild respiratory symptoms, cough, congestion, fever, known COVID exposures, et cetera, that are really, I think, a lot of them are really seeking testing. Like previous waves, the sickest kids, those needing hospitalization, are having a tough time breathing. So they're getting a lot of respiratory symptoms, as we've been expecting. Um, pneumonias, uh, needing respiratory support to help them breathe better. Viral spread expected to intensify in the weeks ahead. And even if the Omicron variant isn't as severe. The problem is that with so many children and adults infected, even if the percent, uh, percent hospitalization rate is lower, we're still, uh, we could see more children hospitalized over a very short period of time. So that certainly puts a strain on our healthcare resources. So about a third of the children at Texas Children's Hospital are under five. Those are the most vulnerable, still unable to get vaccinated at all. And maybe what's most disturbing here is that we're, no, we're nowhere near the end of this thing. They think the next couple of weeks, mid-January into February, is going to be the worst. Texas schools go back into session tomorrow. And keep in mind, in places like Texas, where the government has banned mass mandates in schools, parents are going to have to be very, very careful. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Peter Hotez. He's the chair of uh, uh, Tropical Pediatrics at Texas Children's Hospital and the co-director of the hospital's Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, you just saw Miguel's piece from Texas Children's with those heartbreaking stories from your colleagues about patients there. How are hospital staff dealing with this wave that is hitting kids so especially hard? Yeah, well, we, we got a hint of it over the summer with Delta, which was more transmissible than previous lineages. But this is by far the king of transmissible uh, COVID viruses. So we're seeing unprecedented numbers of kids getting infected and going into children's hospitals. I, I don't think this virus is selectively targeting children. I think what's happening is what we're seeing unfold across the country is a virus firestorm, a virus blizzard. And so many kids are getting swept up in it. And what we tend to see are, are two they come in two flavors. One, kids who've been admitted for uh, other reasons, who are found on routine testing upon admission to be positive. I think that's a substantial segment. But also kids who are actually getting sick from COVID. And so this narrative that it's just a mild virus is, is not accurate. Also, we have the additional problem that in hospitals across the country now, so many healthcare providers nurses, ICU staff, physicians are getting knocked out of the workforce because they have 
COVID and they're at home. And so that creates a dangerous situation on top of it. And and finally, we've just done a terrible job vaccinating our kids across the country. Um, you know, in the south, southern part of the U.S., among the adolescents, 12 to 17-year-old, the rates are about half of what they are in the Northeast, sometimes as low as 30 to 40 percent. And little kids, parents have been really slow to adopt vaccinating the kids five and up. And so that creates that added vulnerability. So even though there's a lot of happy talk about the Omicron variant, less severe disease, when you add up all the factors that I've just talked about, we've got a very serious situation facing us in this country, especially for the kids. And just today, the FDA uh, greenlit the Pfizer booster, uh, a third shot for 12 to 15 year olds, and Pfizer boosters for kids five to 11 if they are immunocompromised. Right now, almost 86% of adults in the U.S., 18 and over, have at least one shot. Compare that to only 61% of 12 to 15-year-olds and only about 24% of 5 to 11-year-olds. Why is it still so low for kids? Is it, is it just parents are afraid of what the vaccine will do? Well, I think, you know, in the, in the southern part of the United States where the adolescent vaccination rates are about half, what you're seeing is there's a lot of negative uh, press around these vaccines in terms of coming from um, even members of Congress uh, and in some of the red states here that are working to discredit vaccines. And so that's that's working against us. And those same parents who have adolescents that they're not vaccinating, well, guess what? Those adolescents have younger brothers and sisters and the parents aren't vaccinating uh, th- them either. And so we've got this kind of spiraling uh, situation. So we need to step up our vaccine advocacy for little kids. There's too much of a narrative out there that says kids do really fine with this. Don't worry about it. And we, we haven't even spoken, Jake, about the long COVID uh, symptoms that we're seeing in kids. So Great Ormond Street Hospital in the UK has done a pretty impressive study to show roughly one in seven uh, kids in, in London are going out to develop long COVID uh, uh, symptoms. And we don't know what that means for their neurodevelopment because in some adults we're seeing gray matter, brain degeneration, cognitive declines. We don't know if that's going to be a situation in kids. So this could haunt us for a long time. And the U.S. needs to not only advocate better, but bring up this situation and really start proactively doing some neurodevelopmental testing of these kids before and after their COVID. Health experts keep saying um, that with uh, better ventilation, masking, testing, and obviously vaccines, kids should be in school. Uh, that the academic, psychological, emotional damage done to them during remote learning uh, was too substantial and there are ways to safely go back to school. Students in Milwaukee, Atlanta, and Cleveland, however, are, are going back to school remotely this week. The CDC keeps saying kids should be in person. Listen to what one mom told CNN's Gabe Cohen. Anytime he talks about school, he gets anxiety, worried about Omicron, worried about courses, worried about social life. It, it, it's a lot for a 16-year-old handle. There are going to be some very long-lasting effects on this generation of kids uh, from all of this stress, especially the, the damage um, from uh, remote learning where so many kids slip through the cracks. Yeah, and, and right before the holidays, Jake, Vivek Murthy, Dr. Murthy, the Surgeon General, issued a very timely report on the mental health aspects of COVID-19. But here's the other piece to this. You know, all of the ways that we've been keeping kids safe over the last two years, 
Omicron's a different animal in terms of how transmissible it is. So it's really unclear how well this is going to go for the first few weeks. So it's it's a very tough call for school administrators, and I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for them making the call either to stay virtual for a couple of more weeks or or or, or holding the line and doing in person now. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It was supposed to be part of President Biden's legislative legacy and critical for Democratic prospects in the midterm elections. Will Democrats be able to pass the Build Back Better Act? We'll talk to a leading Democratic lawmaker next. Stay with us. In our politics lead, an obscured path forward for President Joe Biden as he arrived back in Washington today, not just literally, but figuratively. His his biggest legislative agenda, his Build Back Better plan, has an uncertain future. But today, Senate leaders are putting another issue on the priority list. Let's go to CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Caitlin, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, is calling for action in the next two weeks on some sort of election reform bill. Is the president giving Schumer his blessing to do so? Well, a big question, Jake, is whether or not he's giving him his blessing when it comes to changing those rules. And so we know that the president has said if he gets legislation to his desk on voting rights, he'll sign it. That doesn't seem like a likely path forward at this time right now, given, of course, Republicans have rejected any efforts to pass that over the last several months. And so when it comes to changing the Senate rules, though, the president did say before the holiday break that he could be open uh, to fundamental changes to those rules. And whether it came to a carve out of the Senate filibuster, that would mean changing it basically for one issue or something along those lines, Jake. The president said he kind of views that as a last resort type measure, but they very very well may be in that last resort type place because Senator Schumer sending this letter today, a very bluntly worded letter, talking about how they are going to be voting on changes to the Senate rules by January 17th, that there's been no movement on legislation, which seems really unlikely right now, Jake. And and in this letter from the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, it's really worth reading in full. But he did say in part, quote, we must ask ourselves if the right to vote is the cornerstone of our democracy, then how can we in good conscience allow for a situation in which the Republican Party can debate and pass voter suppression laws at the state level with only a simple majority vote, but not allow the United States Senate to do the same. And so, of course, that would mean changing those votes, changing those rules where they do not need those Republican votes in order to get something passed on voting rights. That has been the big irritation for Democrats over the last several months, Jake. But when it comes to changing those rules, they would need Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema on board to do so. That is something they have not been interested in in the past. And so they've been having meetings privately behind the scenes about this, whether or not they could actually get there and get them on board. That remains to be seen. But that's a big question in this going forward that you're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, Jake. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. She's a deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman, Happy New Year. We're now in 2022 for those counting. Ten months, five days until the midterm elections. On a scale of one to ten, how likely do you see it for for Biden's Build Back Better agenda passing the Senate this year? I think that we're going to get something. I would put put it in the seven to eight category. I think it was very clear that there were conversations that didn't need to play out in public over the holidays. There are too many important things in Build Back Better. You know, part of the problem is everybody knows the words Build Back Better and they don't know what's in it. They don't know that you're trying to lower the cost of prescription drugs. They don't know that employers who are desperate uh, to hire people, that employees can't get childcare. 
they don't know what's in there about helping the supply chain. So we got to do a better job of talking about what's in it. Uh, but it is my hope that people have had a good holiday. They've taken deep breaths and we're going to come back and go to the table and get it done. Well, let's talk about some of the some of the items in the Build Back Better Act. They include universal uh, and free pre-K uh, rebates and tax credits uh, to try to help combat climate change. As you noted, a lower prescription dr- uh, drug prices, uh, an extension on the child tax credit. Uh, that's a provision Senator Joe Manchin says he has issues with. Would you support the Senate r- making this bill smaller so that Manchin would support it? You know, I'm not going to negotiate in public. He has said that he supports the child tax credit, but he thinks it should be different. So let's see what happens in the negotiations. But I'm going to tell you something, Jake. I was on the phone today with one of the CEOs in the auto industry, and we are behind as a country keeping up with Europe and Asia in terms of advanced technology. We can't afford not to get this done, which is exactly what he said to me and told me that even our neighbor Canada is beating us at it and even trying to attract these companies there, build the battery plants there. I don't want those companies going to Canada or to Europe or to China or to Japan or Korea. We've got to get this bill done. We've got to keep jobs here and address these issues. Today, uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat of New York, he put election reform on the priority list. He wants to debate Senate rules in the next two weeks, theoretically getting rid of the filibuster for this vote. Uh, it's an issue Democrats campaigned on, election reform, voting rights, as many call it, promised action. Uh, is that going to happen? Are Manchin and Cinema going to be on board that change? I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'm a traditionalist. I think that uh, our Constitution has held up for a couple of centuries. But I also know that what I'm seeing happening in our states, that where we are seeing people trying to undermine people's confidence in their vote, trying to not get people not to believe that their votes are being counted honorably with integrity and accurately, and now trying to discourage all kinds of people from not being able to vote. Yes, African-Americans and people of color are being discouraged, but so are seniors. We have legislation in the state of Michigan that would make it hard for people who have voted absentee after they've turned 65. Their vote won't count unless they can figure out how to get to the clerk's office and show their ID. That's not right. Democracy thrives when every single person can participate. We maximize participation. Don't diminish it to the lowest number we can. Speaking of attempts to undermine democracy, a rather odd move by Donald Trump today, uh, even by Donald Trump standards, he endorsed the far-right prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban. Uh, Orban is someone who has uh, considered, a, he's considered a threat to democracy. He's consolidated power over the years. He's blocked independent media. He once tried to block asylum seekers and refugees. A lot of people might not know this, but of the many positions you hold, you are also co-chair of the Congressional Hungarian Caucus. Um, what do you make of this endorsement by Trump? Is it too much to say that Donald Trump might want to turn the U.S. into what Viktor Orban has done to Hungary? Well, you know, the Hungarian Caucus doesn't endorse candidates, but we work on issues of mutual concern. But I have, with my colleagues, communicated to the State Department my real concern about what's happening in Hungary to the democracy that we all supported so strongly. He is limiting freedom of press. He is attacking human rights. It is very scary about what he is doing to basic democratic principles 
that people fought so long for. And it's a danger to democracy in the world, that the actions that he is taking. Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, good to see you. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. President Biden makes another promise to respond if Russia invades Ukraine. So what happens now? We're going to go live to the Pentagon and to Moscow next. And our world lead, President Biden is vowing the United States will, quote, respond decisively to any Russian invasion of Ukraine again. Though how seriously Putin takes that pledge, given that Biden has already taken off the table the U.S. dispatching its own forces to protect Ukraine. Well, that's another matter. That pledge came during a phone call with Ukraine's president on Sunday, just days after a tense call between President Biden and Russia's Vladimir Putin last week. As many as 100,000 Russian troops remain on its border with Ukraine, despite increasing warnings from the U.S. and NATO over Russia's military buildup. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now live from the Pentagon. So, Oren, what options does the president have to deter further Russian aggression towards Ukraine? Jake, the primary option remains sanctions. Wide-ranging, hard-hitting, going right after the economy and perhaps, for example, the energy sector, the financial sector, ones that will uh, make uh, Russia pay a heavy price if President Vladimir Putin decides to invade Ukraine. And President Joe Biden promised Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that the U.S. will respond decisively. Zelensky saying he appreciates the call and the special nature of the relationship. But it's not only sanctions. There are military options on the table here. Not to send troops to Ukraine, but to send U.S. troops to Eastern European allies and to other NATO countries to show Russia and to show Putin that the U.S. is still very serious about Eastern Russia and is watching all of this very carefully, sending, for example, reconnaissance flights through Ukraine over the last couple of days to monitor Russian activity. All of this will be done in close coordination with NATO allies. There is, of course, a balancing act here. There is a fine line between deterrence and provocation. And that's what the U.S. and NATO are trying to figure out here during this incredibly sensitive time between Russia and Ukraine. Orrin, the Democratic chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, uh, raised some eyebrows in an interview talking about the conflict. What did he have to say about the likelihood that Russia will invade again Ukraine? He was blunt here, not mincing any words. He called it very likely. Listen to this. I fear that that, uh, Putin is very likely to invade. He certainly appears intent on it, uh, unless we can uh, persuade him otherwise. Um, And I think nothing Mm -hmm. other than a level of sanctions that Russia has never seen will deter him. And that's exactly what we need to do with our allies. Biden and the administration have promised sanctions beyond what Russia saw following the 2014 invasion of Ukraine. And that's what Congressman Schiff is pointing at, saying they need to be, quote, sector-sized sanctions, even saying there should be sanctions targeting Putin personally. Hmm. Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. Let's get the reaction from the Kremlin to President Biden's new warning. CNN's Nick Robertson is live for us in Moscow. And Nick, uh, Putin says the current U.S. posture towards his country could lead to a complete breakdown of relations What does the Kremlin have to say about the warnings from Biden? Um, So far, nothing. And I think there are a couple of reasons here. One is it's sort of still a vacation period here. New Year's a big time to celebrate. And there is the Orthodox Christmas coming up the 7th of January, uh, just later this week, a holiday period for Russian government. However, uh, we did hear from the Russian foreign minister over the weekend saying that Russia would not allow these talks to drag on. But I I think let's take a step back here, uh, Jake, for a second. We're looking at this as how is Russia responding to what President Biden has said, but it is Russia that's created the context 
and the pressure to have these talks, to have the phone calls with President Biden, to, to have the trickle-down effect of the, uh, President Biden's phone call with uh, Vladimir Zelensky of, of Ukraine, to have the meeting uh, next week with, with the United States, to have the meeting with, with NATO after that. Russia, in many ways here, has set, has set the grounds already, has pulled the strings to make this happen. Um, this, in a, in a way, and I'm not calling it a game, but let's just use that, that word here for a moment, um, because it's way more serious than a game, but they've kind of set the terms of this, uh, and they can wait and play it as, as it comes up. They don't have to say anything at this moment. They've said a lot and constructed this scenario already. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Almost a year since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, now a staggering number of Americans say they expect violence over future presidential election losses. We're breaking down the numbers next. In our politics lead, this Thursday marks the sobering one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That deadly insurrection and its aftermath remain a huge focus here in Washington, D.C., both at the Justice Department and on Capitol Hill with the work of the House January 6th Select Committee. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten joins us now live to discuss. And Harry, nearly a full year has passed, and it's stunning so many people still share the false belief of the January 6th rioters that Trump won the election. He did not win the election. What do the latest polls have to say? I think the word you're looking for is maybe insane. I think that's the word. Uh, Look, if you ask people whether they think Biden was uh, legitimately elected, you look among Republicans, look at this, believe that Biden's election wasn't legitimate. 71%. That's barely changed from where it was a year ago when it was 73 percent. Overall, I should point out, it's just 33 percent of Americans who believe Biden victory was not legitimate. But that Republican number to me is quite concerning. And if we look back over time, right, I mean, look back at the last few elections and basically say, okay, do you have no confidence at all that the election was conducted accurately? Look at that number for the 2020 election among the losing candidates party. Sixty three percent. That is out of this world and no other election on that slide you see was it more than 11%. So clearly there's something distinct going on in this past election with so many Republicans believing that it was not a legitimate election, which it clearly was. Oh, Donald Trump lying about it and the Republican Party acquiescing with his lies. How do Americans in general, not just Republicans, Americans in general view what happened on January 6th? Look, you know, again, it's just this big divide between Republicans and and everybody else. You know, 59% of Trump voters say that the January 6th rioters were defending freedom. Just 17% of them called it an insurrection. Most Americans, however, believe it was in fact an insurrection. But, you know, I think what's so interesting here is how they view the January 6th protesters themselves. And essentially, if you say, okay, were these January 6th protesters Trump supporters? Or were they perhaps left-leaning pretend Trump supporters? This is an idea that's been floated out there, which is, of course, lunacy. Among Trump voters, look at that. 45% of them believe that, in fact, these were pretend Trump supporters. Fortunately, most people overall, in fact, believe that the folks on January 6th were Trump supporters, which they actually were. So there are still a lot of Americans who believe in the truth, at least. It's just absolutely disgraceful. I mean, it's just it's just. Such a testament to the MAGA media and MAGA politicians just 
acquiescing, supplicating to this lie. What, what do Americans have to think about future elections? I, I, what they say is that they expect that there's going to be potential violence in future elections. And this is something that actually Trump voters, Biden voters, and overall agree upon. In future presidential elections, will the losing side concede peacefully? Just 38% of voters overall say that, yes, they will. Look at that. Violence over losing? Look at that. 62% believe that there'll be violence over losing in future presidential elections. And Biden voters and Trump voters overwhelmingly agree on that. And, you know, the thing when we're looking ahead to the future is I think we're basically going to get perhaps the same equation, if not a closer election potentially in 2024 than we had this past time around. Because if you look at the 2024 polls at this particular point, what do you see? You see that Biden and Trump are neck and neck in those polls at this particular point. Look at that. 46 percent for Biden versus 45 percent for Trump. If you look back four years ago at this point, Biden was running away with it right now. Voters are very willing to give Trump a chance, despite what happened on January 6th, and despite the fact that a lot of voters feel that Trump is responsible for what happened then. So, and Harry, I mean, we should say, I mean, people saying that they think there's going to be violence doesn't mean that they support violence. I mean, there are a lot of people who who might think that there's going to be violence who oppose it. They're afraid of it. What about voters who say that violence is sometimes justified? Crazy. Crazy. Look at this. 34%. 34%. In fact, say that it is justified sometimes in an ABC News Washington Post poll. And 40, uh, nearly 40% of Trump supporters actually believe that. Biden supporters only 20% do. But the fact is that a third of the public believes that violence is sometimes justified. That's crazy. Absolutely insane. Very disturbing. Harry Anson, thanks. Good to see you again. Happy New Year nice this Thursday. Join us for an unprecedented gathering inside the Capitol with the police, lawmakers, political leaders. Anderson Cooper and I are going to host our coverage live from the Capitol, January 6th, one year later at 8 p.m. Eastern. Coming up in the middle of the COVID surge, the Big Apple's new mayor has a clear message. Classrooms will remain open. New York City Mayor Eric Adams joins CNN Live. That's ahead. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.